Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, the discussions we have on this program are not the views of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees. And also, if you do hear a pertinent legal point that we discuss, recognize that we are not giving legal advice. And if you do have an important legal problem, make sure that you consult a lawyer and acquaint them with the specific facts of your situation so you can get the best advice. Today, my guest is Maya Jackson of the firm of Franklin and Prokopic. Welcome to the show, Maya. I just have to tell you, it's Prokopic. Prokopic, <laughs> oh my. That would be okay. a heresy. <laughs> well, since he wished me well on the way out the door, oh, I think the least nice. I can do is get his name right. <laughs> no, I, I think that's admirable. And that firm has been in existence, according to the website, for 19 years now. 19 and a half, yeah. 19 and a half. And did you start at the beginning? I did. I was actually, I can always tell what the age of the firm is by the age of my son, because he was born about two weeks before we opened the doors. Oh, wow. Or less than that, actually, 10 days, maybe. And and how did you end up going there specifically? The firm was started by a number of partners from Semsbone and Sems. We broke off from Semsbone and Sems to open our own own firm. And these were people that I enjoyed working with, that I respected tremendously and still respect to this day. And I'm delighted to be you know, about to celebrate our 20th year together in June. That is fantastic. So, so had you worked at SEMS or had you just become acquainted with them through your work? I had actually worked at SEMS for about five years before we opened our firm. And I recall from our earlier discussions that prior to getting involved at SEMS and Franklin and Prokopic, I got it right. Thank you. Uh, that you had actually been a claimant's lawyer representing injured people prior to that. I was. That's where I started. I cut my teeth in, in the law. Uh, I started as a paralegal slash law clerk while I was in law school at UB. I was a night student, so it made perfect sense. I had to pay my law school tuition, and working in a legal job was the way I chose to do it, so I'd have experience and be ready for the practice of law when I got out of school. So I worked for three years for Cohen, Dwin, and Garfield, was the uh, plaintiff's firm at the time. Sure. Uh, now Cohen and Dwin. And I was a, their law clerk for that time. And then when I passed the bar, they offered me an associate position, and I was an associate there for another two and a half years. And I understand that while you were working there representing injured people, you had something of a realization that you, in many respects, were better at understanding kind of the deficiencies in their cases. And that led you to the conclusion that you might be on the wrong side of things, as it were. That's correct. I started to realize that when I was doing an intake for an auto accident case, and as part of that process, we were to go outside and use a little disposable camera and take pictures of the vehicle damage. And after a number of episodes where I went outside with my client and looked at the vehicle and had to have them point out to me where the vehicle damage was, after we had been discussing how the accident happened for you know, 15, 20 minutes, I felt like there's a problem. And I'm looking at this from the defense side of things going, that's not quite connecting for me. So at a certain point, I realized maybe what I, what I should be thinking about doing is the defense side of, of things. This was not to say that I didn't think that there were people that were legitimately injured in, in accidents of all varieties. They certainly are. But maybe not all of them are as severely injured as they wish they were for other reasons. What do they call it? Secondary gain or Secondary something like gain, that? Secondary gain, right. 
Right. Interestingly, or maybe not interestingly to our audience who's heard me prattle on about things in the past, but I had sort of the converse situation that I started out my life as a defense lawyer, and I was actually regional house counsel for a company which existed but does no longer called Maryland Casualty, became part of the Zurich Group. So I was house counsel for Geico for a while, tried a zillion auto cases, and then for Maryland Casualty and... Then I sort of gradually transitioned through a realization like yours that my heart wasn't in it from the insurance end of things and that I was sort of more on the side of the people who were injured. And maybe it was the nature of the cases that I saw that I saw some fairly catastrophic things and felt like there was a degree of cynicism directed towards those people that I was not comfortable with. But whatever it was, I kind of did the converse and have been happily ensconced as a plaintiff's lawyer for too many years to recall on the radio or I will age myself. (laughs) Well, what I like to say about my epiphany was that I realized that I could do both by being a defense attorney. In my view, I could help people get the benefits that they were entitled to and yet also be protecting my clients' interests about benefits that might be exaggerated or claims for benefits that were exaggerated. So I sort of felt like it was, for me, a good balancing act and a way of, of being helpful to multiple communities or multiple constituencies, I guess is the word. So that's why I'm still comfortable with what I do. Although I will admit there are times where one has to check one's cynicism. We see as defense attorneys, we see the worst of the worst or the perceived worst of the worst. Sure. And that doesn't necessarily mean the worst of the accidents. Because sometimes the very worst accidents in terms of the catastrophic injuries don't ever get to defense counsel. And the reason for that is everyone recognizes this is a bad one. This is something for which there is liability. And we're not going to fight this. We're going to take care of this. And so I like to think that my role as a defense attorney is to review the facts that are presented to me, review as much information as I can collect from claimants' attorneys, from you know medical records, from investigative reports that have been done, and I put that all together in my own analysis and then give guidance to my clients about how they need to proceed with the case. And it's guidance because as their attorney, I'm not the one making the ultimate decisions. You don't write the checks. I don't write the checks. I don't have the power of the purse strings. But I do have the ability to say, here's what will happen if you do this. Here's what will likely happen if you do that. Here's what I recommend, and let's move the claim forward in a positive fashion. So that's how I view my role, not the one just simply saying, deny, 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 stop, don't pay. If I could praise you unduly, you and I became acquaintances in a workers' compensation case that had a fairly substantial auto accident attached to it. And I had a client who required a surgery, and there was a basis for asserting that it was unrelated, and there was a basis for asserting that it was related to this crash. And he was in a lot of pain and having difficulties. And you, in a gesture of kindness that regrettably I do not see very often in the modern age, agreed to move his hearing up three weeks, so he was in pain three less weeks. Fortunately, we prevailed at the hearing, and he got his surgery and has gotten on with his life, but I really appreciated that. And it made me kind of get acquainted with you and and have a great deal of respect for you. And and thank you for that. I personally view that the point is to try to get to the truth, get to it in a reasonably prompt fashion so that it's fair to everyone and move it forward. If If it's adjudicated by a commissioner or by a judge, depending on 
what venue you're in, that something is is compensable, that it's that there's a responsibility for payment, do it. Get it done. Move forward. Let's keep the claim progressing. Keep the recovery of the injured person progressing in the, a timely fashion. You don't want to be blocking things with unnecessary roadblocks that actually hinder the proper healing of someone. I did mention to you when we were coming in that I have a case where a fellow who had an initial left leg injury has been on what they call temporary total disability, which is to say you're unable to work and you're being paid for 15 years. And an awful lot of the reason why is that the insurance carrier has not been very responsive at different points in time. So his injuries have worsened, required additional surgeries and additional diagnostic testing. And it's one of those situations where I have tried to sort of take the insurance carrier politely by the lapels and say, you know, if you do this, it's just going to go on longer. And regrettably, I have been correct about it. And I do think the process you describe of trying to give people scenarios and saying it could go this way or this way, and here's how you should look at things, is incredibly helpful. Because I think in a lot of instances, for whatever reason, the insurance carriers aren't getting that information. Well, we have to remember that our jobs as, as attorneys, not just the advocacy role, that is an important role of attorneys is to be the advocate, but you're also a counselor. So a lot of people, I think, tend to not look at attorneys as counselors or look at themselves as an attorney being a counselor. But that's a huge part of the role that we play, and we have to try to remember to keep that in mind. Do you have a particular process that you use to approach cases when they first come to you? I'm not exactly sure, but I, I would say I try to gather all the information that's available to me. Do you find that the information is typically available to you at the beginning of a case? You get a new let, – let, let's just – let me cut for one second. What is your predominant practice right now? What's the nature of the work that you do? The nature of the work that I do currently is workers' compensation defense. Okay. So I represent employers and insurance companies defending Maryland workers' compensation claims. Um you, you ask about what's my process at the beginning of a sure. claim. I may not come into a claim until it's way far along in the process. Some years down so, the road Some even. years down the road even. Quite a few of the files that are referred to me come to me at what's called the permanent partial disability phase of the case. That Could we would, take a second just for the benefit of the audience and kind of explain the nature of the – you mentioned permanent partial disability. What does that mean and what are the array of benefits available to injured people in Maryland? Okay. So we've talked briefly about temporary total disability benefits, which I call lost time benefits. They are benefits that are paid during the healing period of a claim while an employee is trying to get as well as they're going to get. Or you may have heard the term, they want to reach maximum medical improvement. That does not mean they're necessarily going to be fully healed. They may never be fully healed, but they're as good as they're going to get there is nothing more that, that medical science can do to improve their condition, and they're healed. So that temporary total disability benefits compensate them while they're in that healing phase and while they're unable to work. Okay. Uh, sometimes an employee is still able to work in some capacity, but maybe not full-time hours. Light-duty capacity or something. Light-duty capacity. If an employee gets a light-duty work restriction and their employer is able to bring them back to work, they may not be doing their regular job. They may be doing some other job that is something that the employer needs to have done, but is not the job the employee is usually doing. And if for some reason while they're doing that light duty 
role, they're earning less money as they would have been doing their normal job, well, then they would be entitled to what's called temporary partial disability benefits. They may be entitled to it. And that's half the difference between what you were making and what you are making generally? Generally speaking, yes. It depends on what the average weekly wage is, which is the the linchpin of all benefits in Maryland. And that's a figure that is determined. That's a a number that's derived from 14 weeks of an employee's pre-injury gross wages, meaning non before taxes. So if I make $1,000 a week before taxes and everything comes out, then that's my average weekly wage. That's correct. Okay. And there's also another factor that's a little bit of an esoteric one, and that is the state average weekly wage plays some role. And I mean, literally a computation of what the average weekly wage is for workers in Maryland plays some role in determining what the limits of the benefits you can receive are. That's correct. That The state average weekly wage, which is determined obviously by the State Department of Labor, is what establishes the maximum benefit that an employee can receive for any given year. Okay. So if your injury happens in the year 2005, you might have one state average weekly wage, and that caps your benefits for the balance of your claim. So it's frozen in time. It's frozen in time. So we've talked about temporary total disability, which is the lost time benefit, temporary partial disability, which is to make up that gap in the wages trying to get you closer to what your average weekly wage was while you're on light duty. When you have finished with the healing period and you have reached maximum medical improvement, or if you have been released to full duty... An employee is no longer entitled to temporary total disability benefits for that claim. Okay. They, they then move on to potentially having entitlement to what's called permanent partial disability. Most people have heard about auto accident claims, may have had an auto accident claim or may not, but they've often heard of the, the concept of pain and suffering or the settlement in a, an auto accident case. Sure. Permanent partial disability is analogous to that in a workers' compensation claim. And it's a function of several different things. Is that correct? Yes. There there are several factors. One is the anatomic impairment ratings that are assigned by a doctor rating on behalf of the injured worker and an impairment rating assigned by a doctor viewing the claimant on behalf of the employer and insurer. So anatomic impairment rating is a bit of a mouthful. Could you put that in sort of more common terminology? Anatomic, we're talking about the body, the anatomy, right? Right, right. That's the physical injury. That's the component of a, a permanent partial disability award that talks about what are the physical injuries and how much impairment does one have based on the body parts that are injured. If one has a knee injury, for example, you might see a permanent partial disability or a permanent partial impairment rating from a doctor of, say, 10% of the knee. Okay. And that's a percentage plunked into a formula based on weeks that tells how much value that injury has given the year of the accident, the average weekly wage of the employee. So there are lots of factors that go into calculating this. And then based on the impairment rating that the doctor is assigned, there is is a, a formula that you apply. Okay. So typically in a case, the injured party through their lawyer would get a permanent impairment rating and then the insurance company would take that information and either choose to not get one or to get one of their own, correct? Correct. Correct. And 
what then happens? Well, there can be negotiations over what the amount of impairment that the parties will agree upon, or they will determine, you know, and if there is a fine, an agreement that's come to, okay. then benefits will be paid based upon that percentage of impairment for the injured body part. Now, is that something agreed to by the lawyers, or does it also have the imprint of the Workers' Compensation Commission on it? Well, the lawyers work up the agreement. They draft a stipulation agreement, and they submit it to the Workers' Compensation Commission with the impairment rating reports, and then the commissioners have to decide, is that reasonable and appropriate? And the commission's sort of serving in a function to protect the interests of the, of the injured workers. Correct. To a certain extent, it's all parties are being correct, uh, sure. you know, protected by it, because once you have an order from the commission, that order instructs the employer and its insurer how much to pay in terms of compensation to the employee. Likewise, the injured worker then knows how much impairment they're going to be uh, remunerated for, how much they're going to receive in benefits based on that, that uh, impairment, that injury. Okay. So... One of the things that I often say to my injured clients is that the word permanent is a little bit of a misstatement or misnomer, that these benefits are not really permanent in nature. In other words, if you're hurt at 25 and you get a 10% impairment, you're not getting paid for the next 60 years. It is something that is really, and this is a little bit of an odd aspect of workers' comp, a function of what part of you is impaired and how many weeks that body part is, is worth. Is that right? That's correct. There is a schedule set out by the statute which assigns maximum numbers of weeks depending on the body part that's injured. And then there's a catch-all called other cases or the body, sure. uh, which is based on 500 weeks maximum of benefits. Now, workers' compensation is an interesting animal because we talk about there's a schedule and there's a, a number of weeks that are capped, but in certain circumstances, benefits can be awarded that are even higher than what the caps allow for. So it's an, it's an interesting anomaly in the law that's developed by case law over time. It's, it's sort of an odd thing because workers' compensation really originated in part to protect employers where they made mistakes and their employees were injured, and also in part to protect the injured people. But they also wanted to make it relatively simple. And with all these complexities, it really is not a simple matter. It isn't a simple matter. It's actually one of the reasons that I'm still doing workers' compensation defense law 27 years into my legal career is that it there is something new that I come across every single day, some nuance to the law, some fact situation that doesn't fit squarely into the construct of the Workers' Compensation Act. So you have to really think before you're, you're deciding how to treat a case. It's, it's For me, it's challenging, it's stimulating, and it makes it fun to practice this kind of law even though I don't think there are many people who would say they came out of law school planning to be a workers' compensation attorney, whether it's on the, the claimant side, the, the plaintiff side, or on the, the defense side. I think you're 100% correct in that. Is there any particular resource that you think that either professionals or lay people should rely on with regard to Maryland workers' compensation? A resource? Well, definitely the Workers' Compensation Commission's website. Um, that website has a, a large volume of free information that 
anyone can access to find out, you know, how does this system work and what, you know, what to expect from the system. If you have a, an injury, it is important that you think about looking at that workers' compensation website, Maryland Workers' Compensation Commission. If you look that up on a Google search, you will find it, and there is a lot of information there that will help you as an injured worker figure out what needs to happen. Is it easier or harder to work on workers' compensation cases when there is a lawyer on the other side? Much easier to have a lawyer on the other side. Okay. And that's simply because it is a complicated system, and it's challenging to try to explain to a layperson all of the nuances you know, every single time you go through a claim. Sure. So it's much easier when you're working with someone who is experienced and they're also advocating on behalf of that injured worker who may not be feeling well enough to advocate for themselves at the time. So it, I find it, it, it's important that most claimants will go out and find an attorney. And when they don't and they have an issue that results in the need for a hearing, all workers' compensation commissioners will stop before a hearing commences with an unrepresented injured worker and will advise them Look around the room. Just about everyone here is represented by an attorney, including the employer and the insurance company on the other side of your case. It would behoove you, and if you will ask for a continuance, I will allow you a continuance to go out and find an attorney who can help you with this case. Sometimes you find that the injured worker has already made that attempt to locate an attorney and has not been successful in doing it. Um, and that's sort of telling because attorneys in workers' compensation claims do not charge an hourly rate fee to the injured worker when they are representing them in the case. So you don't have to put down $5,000 or something like that to have a lawyer in a workers' comp case. Exactly. There is no retainer agreement. There is no hourly fee. The attorney in a workers' compensation case representing an injured worker is paid from the benefits that are awarded to the employee based upon the amount of work that attorney has done to assist them in getting those benefits. Okay. And oftentimes you will see, with depending on the, the nature of the claim, there are many attorneys who actually will waive a portion of their fee to allow that, that injured worker to receive more of the benefits that they were entitled to. I so. knew plaintiff's lawyers were nice people secretly. <laughs> <laughs> It's not in every case, but there certainly are plenty of them out there who are mindful of that. And that's, that's I think, also part of what attorneys are supposed to be doing. When you're a counselor and an advocate, you have to play both roles. And sometimes in that counselor role, you understand that there's a need to reduce a fee so that it makes it, it, makes it so that that injured worker gets the benefits that they need. So what percentage of the cases that you become involved in actually go to some sort of hearing? Oh, that's a good question. Years ago, I would have said, you know, most of them. Nowadays, it's there are less and less that require hearing. And I suspect that part of that is because I am more experienced at what I do. So I know how to resolve a claim. And resolving a claim, I don't mean by necessarily by way of full and final settlement, although there are more of those taking place now with workers' compensation cases. But there are other ways you can resolve an issue without the need for a hearing. Okay. And that can be by, by looking at the 
the information that's in front of you, looking at what the claim really is that's being made, and making a decision as to whether you're going to fight over the issue or whether you and the attorney representing the injured worker can come to a compromise about what is more likely to be the result at a hearing. So let's compromise and avoid that cost, get the benefits to the injured worker faster if there are benefits that they're entitled to. So there, I find that you know, the older I get, the more likely I am to reach out to the attorney on the other side more frequently and more often to try to figure out ways to come to compromise because everybody's happier in the long run when you're not you know drawing out claims to the nth degree fighting about every single issue that you could conceivably come up with that's just not what the system was meant to do so we have to remember the advocate role is important and we wear it when we have our hearings but you also finish your day, you walk out in the hall, and you shake the hand of the attorney that you just advocated against. It is one of the great things about, and I used to do more of it, I do very little workers' comp in Maryland now or D.C., but is that there is kind of a different feeling among the members of the bar that everybody sees each other regularly. And it is less combative, you know, shaking your fist in front of a jury kind of stuff. And the commissioners, I don't think, have much tolerance for people going over the edge in the hearing. So there's a nice camaraderie in the bar is what I would say about that. The Workers' Compensation Bar in Maryland uh, has a, a conference every year we just had it in September. Ocean um, City. The MWCEA Ocean City Conference. And I've been a, blessed to be a board member of, for MWCEA for a number of years. It is an interesting organization because it brings all members of the workers' comp community, which means workers' compensation commissioners, the you know attorneys on both sides, medical professionals, vocational counselors, private investigators, Anybody who is involved in any which way with the Workers' Compensation Commission comes to this conference. And it's an excellent way of people getting to know each other on a personal level. And, you know, oftentimes at the conference, people are working out difficult issues because they're sitting down and they're having a civil conversation. So, one of the, the fascinating things about the Maryland Workers' Compensation Bar is the degree of civility that still exists. And you, you don't have to like everybody all the time, but you certainly find that you like most of the people almost all of the time, and you get along with them, and you know where you stand with them, and it makes the process of handling, you know, for either side, workers' compensation claims a lot more palatable and a lot more effective, I think, because you're moving through the process together and you're not necessarily always you know, at loggerheads. So one final thing, because I believe we are about out of time, is that we want to talk about workers' compensation commissioners, and they are all appointed as the equivalent of district court judges by the governor. Is that right? That's correct. And it does draw from a wide swath of people from defense lawyers and injured party lawyers and people in some instances who really have no historic acquaintanceship with workers' compensation. That happens from time to time, yes. Makes for an interesting sort of growing up stage for all of them. But I have found, generally speaking, that the commissioners through the years are genuinely interested in the welfare of the injured people, but also kind of 
make a significant effort to be fair to both sides in the cases. Is that your experience as well? That is definitely my experience. And the commission right now is going through its natural cycle of growing pains, or maybe that's not the right word, but transition, as happens in, in all parts of our society, things change over time and people retire. And so we're, we're going to be missing, and we are missing, a number of you know excellent workers' compensation commissioners that have been retiring in the last matter of months. But that just means there are openings and opportunities for new commissioners to make their own imprint on the, the uh, Workers' Compensation Commission. Can I start a campaign of Maya Jackson for Workers' Compensation Commissioner? Well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm honored <laughs> that she would suggest that. You'd be great. But, <laughs> but I'm not sure that that's in my cards. I understand. Um, it, it is, after all, a political appointment, and that would require me to be a little more political in my personal life than I choose to be. But thank you for the vote of confidence. I appreciate that. My pleasure. (laughs) Well, I'm afraid it's about time to wind up on Everyday Law. Maya Jackson, thank you so much. You have made workers' compensation interesting and have given a perspective that is not often given on this show. Well, I thank you for allowing me to share my views. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.